Hello, this is Darren Pulsifer, Chief Solution Architect of Public Sector at Intel. And welcome to Embracing Digital Transformation, where we investigate effective change leveraging people, process, and technology. On today's episode, Becoming a Data-Ready Organization with special guest, retired Rear Admiral Ron Fritzmeier. Ron, welcome back to the show. Thanks for having me, Darren. Glad to be here. Hey, Ron, it's always a pleasure talking to you. Um, you come from a, a great heritage and, uh, and on the Intel team with lots of other uh, former Navy. Uh, give us a little bit of your background so our audience can understand more um, who they're listening to today. Sure. Um, by education, I am an electrical engineer. And I actually started out my career in uh, microelectronics for the government at uh, Sandia Labs. And uh, while I was at the labs, I actually uh, found out about the Navy. And I won't go into all the details of why that was of interest to me, but uh, I, I joined the Navy actually as a reserve career. So I had for much of my career kind of a dual uh, government civilian and then Navy uh, career. It just turned out that uh, by chance, uh, when the Navy decided to uh, promote me to Rear Admiral, but they also said, oh, by the way, we want you full time. So I actually finished my career for several years on active duty, kind of reverse of the normal way that that works. For I, I was going to say, Admiral Fitzmaier, you did it backwards. Yeah, I, did, I did it backwards, but it, it, it worked out well for my wife because my wife, uh, I married her just before I went on uh, duty as a flag officer. And so she didn't know anything about the military except being a flag officer's wife. And she, uh, she stepped up to the task big time. It was pretty amazing, actually, how she jumped. That's that. That's that's pretty incredible. So, a background in electrical engineering, um, but you're you're kind of a cyber guy. Yes. Yeah, so um, early on in my career, because of really the the microelectronics, um, it turned out one of my um, super super skills, if you will, was I was great at breaking things, and uh, that that got nice. me into. Uh, uh, reverse engineering and sort of the black hat business, which I won't go into the, all the details there, but it was basically how things can go wrong when you're intending to try and make them secure and operable. And that just seemed like a natural piece uh, falling into sort of the cyber world. And so in fairly short order, I found myself doing more in sort of, I'll say, the cyberspace than other things, although I did a lot of comms and other C4I type engineering work over the years. But the heavy emphasis on cyber and cybersecurity, in fact, even in my civilian career, that ended up being a large part of what I did, uh, driving operations where we were frankly taking advantage of the fact that other people aren't good at their cybersecurity, as well as trying to improve uh, national security agency work, uh, not, not all NSA, but broadly speaking, national security agencies, um, cybersecurity. So that, that led into my Navy portion of my career where I was the chief engineer out at the, the Navy Systems Command that today is known as NAVWAR and also spent time at STRATCOM helping drive the NC3 enterprise modernization. So uh, great, pred great pedigree. Obviously, I'm talking to someone who knows their stuff, but we're not talking cybersecurity today. We're talking... The big, huge push right now that we're seeing everywhere is AI, specifically generative AI. But to make that work, we need data behind it. Um, and managing data is a, is a key aspect to that, both on the cyber side as well as on operations and especially now with generative AI. 
what's your what's your take on on data management is is it a well-known art why i mean where are we at with the state of this so even from the, the early days of my career when we were had to basically certify components that were going into, in this case, uh, nuclear weapon systems or space systems. So you have these really high reliability requirements. There was always this notion that you had to maintain, develop and maintain all kinds of data as part of validation and certification packages of whatever those systems or subsystems were. But all of it, looking back on it, very, very manual intensive, right? And so I had experiences kind of almost in tranches throughout my career where I saw this notion of as we move more and more into sort of a, a data-driven and I'll say IT-driven world where information technology is sort of underpinning, not just nice to have, but it's fundamentally what enables you to drive whatever your business is, right? In my case, it was always sort of national security systems, is that we, we struggled with this notion of how do I turn my data into something that I use more and more effectively in sort of this IT automated data-driven world. And, and I have example after example. I, one for the Navy uh, would be how we would go about preparing for ships when they're coming back from deployment and they're going to come into a maintenance and modernization cycle. And, and the issue is that while that ship is... And how, how often does... Yeah, how often does that maintenance cycle happen for these ships? Because a lot oh, of people it, don't. Uh, it aren't familiar it, it with depends. That. There's actually multiple cycles. So after every deployment, there's by definition some level of maintenance cycle. It may be very, very minimal because the ship may, in fact, you know, I'll say come home and turn right around in a matter of days or a few weeks. But then there's like major modernization cycles and sort of a function of the different ship systems and so on and expectation of how long things will operate before they, you know, break down to the point where you have to replace or do major. Uh, repairs, right? So it's, it's a variation of those cycles, but I'm talking about cycles that typically would happen in the two to three year time frame where a ship has been out on maybe a, a few deployments and they've had minor work done in between on those deployments, but now they're coming back for some kind of what would be considered a, uh, a, a major uh, modernization or major repair, what we would call an avail a major ship availability. And in order to okay. prepare for that availability, as you can imagine, these our, our ships are very, very complex systems. I mean, some of them are, for all intents and purposes, small floating cities, right? So imagine all of the systems that are involved in, in operating that ship. And oh, by the way, in case you're not aware of it, the maritime environment is a, a very, very tough environment. Awesome. It's hard on everything, yeah. right? So when ships come back, there's a lot of engineering and planning that goes into those maintenance cycles. But the first thing you really need yeah. is what is the actual state of the ship quote today, right? I don't, it's, it's, you need to know what, how it was planned, but you also need to know what's happened to the ship over time. And, and as you might imagine, nothing stays terribly static on a ship throughout a deployment, right? Because you got to keep it running. So all kinds of things happen. So part of the availability preparation is you actually send out a team of people who essentially go out and do all kinds of, of measurements and preparation for modernization where you're going to be taking out systems and putting in new stuff potentially, but also assessing the current state of all the systems on the ship as best you can because it's still underway, right? So you can't do everything. You can't rip everything apart, but to the extent that you can assess the state of things, that allows for the planners back home to be preparing work packages for what has to actually be done in the availability. The issue becomes that has historically been Potentially, large groups of people that are flown out to the ship, 
along with ship's force, right? They attempt to do all these measurements and assessments. And you can imagine these guys basically with tape measures and clipboards and, and writing stuff I down, right? I mean, it's, it, it's that hardcore. But every one of those things brings in the opportunity from a human standpoint for human error. And so historically yeah. what we've yeah. seen is that you, you expect that there's going to be you know, errors and missing data and all those kinds of things. And so how do you deal with that? Well, when you're just dealing with the data manually, you sort of expect that and that's just a natural part of the process. But as you try and automate analysis and assessment to move things forward, the, the, uh, the quality of your data becomes even more important as you look to try and build processes to take advantage of it to move yourself forward. So that's an interesting point. I want to I want to emphasize a little bit. Your data collection is critical uh, for uh, taking advantage of automation. Because in the past, before you would look at automation, there were people involved. So they they could make up the difference in the lack of data collected, right? Because oh, I know something about this ship already. I you know they measured. They measured something that I know is not a hundred yards. It's only 90 yards, you know, th things like that. Cause there's some tribal knowledge right. or some tacit knowledge that's sitting there. So, but when you automate, like you said, all of a sudden that those uh, nuances in the data are completely lost. Right. And, and the gaps in the data are now causing um, gaps in your analysis as well. Another thing that I, I saw over time was uh, even in places where we had started building systems to better collect data, there was the notion of there's still the human in the loop for the data collection process at some level, right? And so we had systems when we started saying, okay, now that we've, we've actually built a fairly substantial data collection system, let's talk about how we analyze the data differently and, and again, move toward more automation to speed the the process and to frankly take better advantage of the data. That was once again where we learned that how you go about collecting data actually makes a big difference. And one for instance is when you have a situation where, and I'll use a maintenance example, you have a maintainer that's looking at a platform. The one I'm actually thinking of is actually an aircraft platform, but it's the same across the board, right? And, and yeah, they yeah, have been yeah. given this form that they have to fill out, right? And they may even put the form on a computer. So now we've computerized data collection, right? But the guy still sits down yeah. at the keyboard and types up. And in. he's typing. Or, and, yeah. and because as we, we've designed it, we ask them different kinds of questions that in many cases are subjective. And sometimes the maintainer says, well, I don't really know the answer to that, but I have to fill in the field because we put into the computer program that collects the data a requirement for that field. field. So, we end up with, excuse me, we end up with data sets sometimes that says, I love mom. It's like, what? <laughs> like, it let me get past the screen, right? It let me get past the screen and I didn't know what to put in there and really? I me do something. <laughs> that is hilarious. That is hilarious. But, but you're right. But, but, but you're right, right? I mean, th this totally makes sense. So <laughs> what, what do you do? do? Do we want to take the human out of the loop? Because... Humans, we are um, unpredictable. Um, we we go around things. If we don't know something, we we just make something up. Um, 
right? Yeah. I mean, we're, we're horrible. We're horrible at, at um, content generation that's consistent, yeah. right? So, so to me, there are, there are a couple things that came out of it. One was, um, and, and, and once again, I, this might sound bad, but working in the government, I've seen this happen so many times. We, we don't oftentimes, when we're trying to build these systems to help people collect the data that we need, we don't actually think very much about the person who's actually doing that front-end collection, right? And so we get yeah, them a tool that, sense. that it's, like, it's almost like, um, you know, I, I think of, you know, websites that today people go to without even thinking about to go shopping, right? The, the science behind how a person, how many clicks a person has to produce <laughs> or, or make in order to get well, that's success huge. That's huge. huge. Yeah. Yet in so that's many huge. cases in our systems, when, we're, when we don't think of that person at the front end of our data as really being a customer in that sense, we don't necessarily design the systems to make it easy. And so my experience has been, if you, if you don't make it easy for the person to do the right thing, by definition, you made it easier for them to do the wrong thing in terms of the data collection. And, and thus, you have one of the challenges of being a data-ready organization is you need to think about the entire life cycle of your data from the very start of collection all the way through how you manage it and process it to take strategic advantage of it, right? And just, I think it's important to recognize that there's several stages of all of that data readiness that you want to work through because there's probably room for most organizations to improve in every one of those areas. I, I, I like that approach, Ron, because what typically happens is people focus on one area mm -hmm. independent of the others, right? Oh, we'll do better at, at data collection. Give all those guys LIDAR <laughs> on the ship. So they walk in with LIDAR. <clears throat> Great. There's still subjective things, right, that they have to, even if you gave uh, visualization to them, LIDAR and um, a camera, and they walked around the ship, there's things that they're going to smell or see or, you know, feel that a camera and other sensors just can't do. Right. Um, not yet. Just give it some time, right. I guess. <laughs> so that that's an interesting, I, I like how you're, you're pulling that all together. Um, what do you do as far as um, once the data is collected, um, there's going to be some dirtiness in the data regardless, right. right? Even in fully automated systems like uh, cyber threat detection is, is a great example. There's lots of noise in, in, in that data that's generated. What, I mean, what, what do you do about all that noise? How do you filter it out? Do you keep it all? This is a big question I know a lot of people have. They're afraid to throw away anything for fear that that data that they have may have some nuggets of uh, insight in there that they're missing out yeah, on. Yeah, I, I think this is, is maybe sort of the, the, the magic. And you know, I, I had a, a data scientist that worked for me when I was uh, back at uh, Spade Wars, now NAV Wars, I mentioned. And his counsel, I thought, was really good. Is that so many people when they when they sort of get, I'll say, data religion, right? We're now going to be a data driven organization. Yeah, we're data driven. Yeah, yeah, yeah. They they without thinking about it, they they imagine that they're going to boil the ocean. And he said, "No, let let let's start with get a teaspoon and say, what do I want to do with this teaspoonful of this data, right?" What am I going to do with it? And so having driving with intent of 
what makes my mission more successful, either improving efficiency or improving performance or both, right? Or reducing some other cost. Trying to understand what is your objective and using the data to strategically drive your business. And then, and then do that as sort of a look back at, so what, what data actually helps me do that? So there's, there is, I think, a, a real analytic process of saying, how do I expect to use my data to achieve mission success, right? And, and if you look really hard at that, I think what people will find is that you may be collecting data that is actually not helping you drive it to those answers, right? Or as you point out, you may have some dirty data and then you need to ask the question. I think if you're doing it in sort of a focus analysis where you're not trying to boil the ocean, you could say, okay, if I have a lot of this data, but it's, you know, only 80% quality, whatever that would mean, right? Does it still drive me based on my analysis to a useful answer? And again, without going into the specifics, uh, there was a great Navy example of this where we had a very large corpus of maintenance data on a system. And we started saying, what can we do to speed the maintenance process, right? To, to improve aspects of the maintenance. And as we started trying to look at the data and to say, where do we see indicators of events that if we made a different decision there, it would improve our maintenance cycle? We saw one, we had dirty data, but two, we had a lot of data. And so even with, I'll say, the dirtiness of the data, we were kind of able with analytics to overcome that. So. You don't necessarily have to have perfect data, but you need to understand do your analytics still seem to drive you to a reasonable conclusion, right? So so I like that, right? You you talked about finding out where your data is, what data you have access to. And how you can leverage that data to get analytics. And I love how I love the the concept of my data doesn't have to be perfect. Because I think a lot of times, especially data scientists, will do this. I've got to cleanse all my data because it's a science, right? The science is all I, everything is well known. There are no unknowns, right? That's how science likes to work. But there's this data engineering. Us engineers, I, I'm. I've got a CS degree and a double E um, uh, degree. And so it's it's fuzzy, right? Right, And that's something my professors taught me in engineering. You don't need to know exact. You need to know within, right? right? right. A range, right? So that's, that's, what, that's where we have to get to with data as well. Otherwise, we could be stuck trying to cleanse our data and spending all of our time cleaning our data without getting any, any valuable information out. And, and at some level, the answer is it depends, right? Which is the classic lawyer example. But well, yeah, there are yeah. places where the, the answer has to be incredibly precise and accurate, right? And Like uh, targeting systems of uh, nuclear missiles, right? and so, for example. Well, maybe not. Depending on the, nation, the, the nature of the analytics you're using, you, you may actually have some systems where you really do have to do, I'll say, data preparation on your data collection to ensure that you don't drive to a wrong answer. But as you point out, there's just okay. so many cases where that's just simply probably not really true, right? Is that you can actually get very good analytic results out of data good that's enough. good enough, good enough, right? Yeah. And, and then the other thing that I, I saw uh, in this process was people, even though they collect all this data, they don't really know what they've done with it, 
So, so the notion of actually having, I'll put it this way, a data library. In other words, there, there's actually value in knowing what you've done with your data from collection all the way through analysis. And I think that's another part of the data readiness is kind of maturing in how you actually handle your data. And I guess I, I looked at it this way is that if the data really does represent strategic value to your organization, then it's worth paying attention to it, just like you would your money, right? You don't just go, oh, I collected a bunch of money. I earned a bunch of money. I don't know where I put it, but it's around here somewhere, right? Most people probably don't do that, right? Unless you have this. No, most people don't. <laughs> Unless you have tons of it, right? And maybe, maybe that's, maybe the, that's the problem, maybe that's the Ron. <laughs> Yeah. I mean, we, we generate so much data, right? That And we collect it all and we store it. And because I feel that way about my own data, right? Right. I've got a terabyte up in up in Azure Cloud of, of personal data. Those are um, uh, family videos and pictures, yeah. and my podcasts are, are stored up there. And I blew through a terabyte, <laughs> and I was starting to run out of space, right? So all of a sudden, I started caring about data. I had a whole bunch of <laughs> clips that were, you know, copies of clips and things. So I started going through all my data and removing duplicates and, and things like that. Um, so it's, it's funny when you have, when you have abundance, you don't value it as much. Right. Um, So maybe that's part of the problem uh, that we're having. uh, On the other hand, um, when I go, I know that there was this picture that was really, really cool that I took two to three years ago. How can I find it? Right. (laughs) Oh my goodness. (laughs) Um, I do want to mention one other thing. I, I think, and this almost comes off as counterintuitive in some ways to what we what I said earlier about. I think the way that a lot of organizations can move forward is by don't boil the ocean, but but start focused and let that grow. But even as you start on small things and and focus on it, don't lose sight of the big picture. And I say that because one of the things that I've seen time and time again when we start trying to do real data analytics, right, to drive decisions, to drive strategic value, we also discover value that we weren't even looking for in the data, right? And and that's kind of like the, the extra pot of gold that you really weren't expecting, but that you just kind of run into. But it, it's important to have the, that kind of mindset of that while I'm working on a focused set that with an intended outcome, I'm always kind of keeping in mind did. what... What's, what's the bigger picture of my strategic goals for the organization? And, and pay attention to that. Um, again, back to that maintenance example, <clears throat> one of the things that we, we learned out of that study, besides the fact that we had a lot of dirty data, besides the fact that we had so much data that we actually were able to get some good analytics, despite the fact that we had some dirty data, because we learned all the early things about changing that data collection process to, to just sort of inherently try and improve that. But what we also found were some interesting things about what was our hypothesis of what needed to be done to improve maintenance versus what the data started showing us. And one of the things the data showed us was there are certain parts that you send back for maintenance and repair that are just lemons, which is to say, you're going to get that part and it's going to get repaired and it's going to come back into the stockpile and and darn it, it's going to be bad. Not immediately... Sometime really soon. In other words, there's something about how we, our process of repair and test 
that is clearly not sufficient, but we haven't nailed it down yet. So you can use that one to say, okay, that means there's something we need to learn about how we do that repair and that testing. But you can also say at some level, it's actually cheaper just to say, you know what, if I have a part that passes, uh, gets past a certain point of how many times it goes for repair, throw it away. It's actually cheaper and faster just to get it out of the stockpile than it is to keep fighting it and let it become a bigger part of your maintenance cycle and problem, right? That wasn't necessarily those are, good, those, are, those are great. Yeah, those are great nuggets, right? When you when you actually run into that, right? Where, wow, that I learned something new. So I like your idea: is stay focused, but keep one eye wandering around and yeah. looking at, hey, what other additional things can can I learn from the data? Um, great, great insight into data, especially now that data is becoming. Dave, we've heard data's the new oil, whatever. But now with generative AI, I think it's starting to unleash some of that data even more. Um, and like you said before, uh, like um, I, I can see some new things happening when someone's filling out a form that it's not just a static form anymore, that a gen AI could be asking questions and converse with with the person to get information out. Like if they say, <laughs> if they say, hey, um, what's the status of this, uh, you know, doohickey on, on, on the aircraft? And they go, I love my mom. It's gonna go, that's great, you love your mom. Can you look at this thing, please? <laughs> so, Is it black? Is it white? Is it pink? Is it, you know, it's something more interactive to to spur on uh, and and help people get over their stuff. And, and in places where that data collection really is, I'll, I'll say a big deal because in some cases maybe you really don't care that much, right? But there are a number of places right, yeah. where it really matters. And, and I've seen systems where we say, well, let's let's reduce how much free text input we ask for. And so what that means, oh, no, see, is we now go in and we say, okay, yeah. now you have a pick list. And you have to pick one of these things. And I'll tell you, inevitably, when I get confronted with a pick list, you know, the majority of the time, I don't pick the second one. No, none of these things in the list fits, but I can't get past it until I pick one of them. And so if I had some ability for those things that really matter to say, oh, let's interact with that person at some level and say, so, you know, talk to me. What, why, why don't these fit? What, what's, you know, something to help build a level of understanding that that could be really, really cool in my mind, right? (laughs) <laughs> yeah, see, another great use case for generative AI to help in, in data collection and yeah. getting information from, from the real world. Ron, it's always a pleasure talking to you. We always have fun talking. Thanks for coming on the show today. Thank you, Darren. I appreciate it. Have a great day. Thank you for listening to Embracing Digital Transformation today. If you enjoyed our podcast, Give it five stars on your favorite podcasting site or YouTube channel. You can find out more information about Embracing Digital Transformation at embracingdigital.org. Until next time, go out and do something wonderful.